0: Final Four, we've covered that previously, Uh, NBA getting ready for the playoffs, Uh, NFL getting ready to move a team, Uh, NHL uh, getting ready to figure out the Olympics. We'll deal with those issues. We have a lot to talk about, and the guy who revolutionized the notion of global digital world domination, the executive editor of Reuters Global, Dan Colarusso. How's that?
1: That's that's excellent, Rick. It makes me feel very very important. I'm glad to be back. I've, I think I've been out a couple of weeks. I've been traveling. Um, Amy Tennery has filled in very very uh, probably better than than I do. Um, but there's some there's some good stuff uh, this week. This this has been a, a really great sports money news week, uh, and we could start with the the ladies of U.S. hockey.
0: Yeah, well, let's do that. Uh, and, and 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 by the way, just to set the scene on this, you know, a four year. Um, They they played a large game of chicken with USA Hockey. USA Hockey spends about $3.5 million to support 60 games for boys slash men, and the women don't get that kind of money, and they really staged a work stoppage. There was going to be a major strike beginning March 31 in Plymouth, Michigan at the a World Hockey Championship, and back down, one bargain, whatever you want to call it. But the women are now getting more money. They've signed a four-year deal. And, you know, what do you think of the whole thing?
1: I think two things. It was a great job of negotiation. Women's professional sports, in most of them, bar tennis and a, and a few others, there, there's not the big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, at least not in the United States for them. So it's really incumbent on them to make some money, get you know, have a livelihood, a real livelihood of doing what they love. So I think that's, it's, it's a nice win there. But it also shows, and I'm going to throw this concept out. You tell me how you know, real it might be or, or how credible it might be. But there aren't a lot, there's not a lot of room for growth in the size of the American sports audience. Does this make women, female professional athletes, more valuable in this realm? Meaning you're not going to get many, many, the male market is saturated. Um, Is this the outlet? Is this the revenue potential, um, the revenue growth potential that U.S. sports has right now? And are they realizing it grudgingly, whether it's soccer? They had the same problem with the women's soccer team in the U.S. and now hockey. Uh, Is this a realization or am I over? Stepping, what the reality
0: is no not only not overstepping reality but this was a very artful tease by you you didn't even know it so angela ruggiero who uh women's uh uh, gold medalist in hockey silver bronze basically women hall of famer uh you don't want to say mother but one of the, the best female hockey players in the world she answers exactly that we do that interview we'll do it in a couple of weeks but her big issue is where is the ceiling and the more women unite they can expand the ceiling because the more they're taken seriously, the more opportunities there are to promote mainstream women's sports beyond tennis and golf and pick up some sponsors. So the example would be that now that there's a four-year deal, they go on to other things like promotion. What's one of those promotions? Well, remember, the WNBA plays in the summer in arenas that are owned by NBA teams. The hockey folks are having meetings to do some of the same stuff. And why not, just to pick an example, the Buffalo Sabres have a women's hockey team playing in the Buffalo arena when the Sabres are not playing. It's an interesting concept.
1: It's a good concept. And if you look at the, the, the WNBA, which has, I, I don't want to say it's been wildly successful, but it's still around. Um... In that sense, the players, you know, there was that great story about Diana Taurasi going to Russia to play, and that's where the big money is for them. And I think women athletes, women, top-level women athletes in the U.S., I think it's unfortunate that they have to seek their fortune elsewhere. And as this develops, you know, you'd like to think that there's a credible economic model for them here in the States. And I think uh, the Olympics is where they get their exposure and where they start to get their branding opportunity and give people a taste of something that they want to see more of.
0: Great segue into the Olympics. You're really a segueing fool today, man, I'm telling you.
1: At least half of that.
0: Yeah, I know where my bread is buttered, pal. It's segueing. So the, the bottom line of all of this is the Olympics is the great quintessential every four-year branding for hockey. The women have been, ironically, more successful than the American men have. But now the American men, after five straight Olympics, are trying to figure out whether they want to go. A lot easier to go in Vancouver in 2010, same time zone, than it is to go in Korea next year, year and a half from now. You can tell us about it, but I know that the guys that are promoting it are trying to uh, get into a a more tenable situation with the with the USA Hockey and the NHL. They're going to pick up some travel expenses and otherwise. But the whole idea about branding here is that it's not like the NBA where the season is over before the Summer Olympics. This is a very hard choice for it's, Gary Bettman.
1: It's also not like the NBA in that the best players aren't American. I mean, some of them are, but like like in the NBA, you could make the argument it's an American sport. Uh, Women's hockey, women's soccer, you could make the argument that it's a powerhouse. Um, Is there enough money? I think the larger question here is, is there enough money for the NHL owners to let their guys go? Um, And if you have the Winter Classic every year, you have a few variations of the Winter Classic. You have an all-star game weekend that you're starting to develop. You have a legitimate TV deal now. You have high-def TV. You have your ducks in a row. Do you need the Olympics if these guys are just going to lose anyway? I mean, the only advantage is, the only positive is that European players don't fight and don't cheap shot. So <laughs> there's less of a chance of your Canadians and Americans getting hurt. That said, I don't know that there's enough money for the NHL to make the trip to Korea.
0: Well, Gary Bettman says so as much by saying... Look, we don't get any content out of this because this is a Olympic channel, Olympic-related stuff. We don't do NHL.com on it. It's not an Olympic event. So unlike the World Baseball Classic where that's content they create and they own, what's the advantage? And so he's got a hard decision to make. But as usual, his owners stand behind him like they did, by the way for the Golden Knights in Vegas. Well, guess what? Vegas goes from a radioactive town that has no major league sports because of gambling. Now they have a, two NASCAR races. They have the Golden Knights starting this October. And now they have the Raiders coming in two and a half years.
1: I'm not sold. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I think NFL is a unique proposition. Uh, and I think that, that it's gonna be tough in Vegas. Look, The, the upside is you have good weather. You have a nice retirement, high net worth ticket fan base, right? Fan base for season tickets. You take that, I don't know if if Vegas will be the long-term answer for the Raiders. I don't know if anyone's going to be the long-term answer for the Davis family, quite frankly.
0: Well, here's the reason why it's closer to a long-term answer. $1.7 billion, that's the cost of the new stadium. And how about the other real part of the long-term answer? $750 million in public money that's not offensive, meaning it's tourist-related, it's hotel rooms. Last time we checked, get this, the locals don't spend a lot of time in hotel rooms unless the ones they pay for for the hour. We'll let that alone. And the bottom line of all of this is that the voters... Don't pay for the stadium. The tourists do. And more important for Vegas itself, this is for UNLV, the football team for University of Nevada, Las Vegas. More important, more important, Final Fours, Super Bowl rotation, conventions, and other big things they haven't had a dome stadium for, especially during the summer. So what this does is causes Vegas the reason to build a facility that's going to bring in a hell of a lot more economic impact
1: well, you know, this is this is your specialty, and and, and I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll buy that the NFL team gives it another gi- gives it another venue, and gives it you know more year-round sports involvement. And I guess the fact that it's painless for the residents for the taxpayers um, doesn't hurt. Uh, So we'll we'll see. I mean, look, I'm not I'm not a big fan of franchises abandoning cities. Uh, The producer of the show, Alex Cohen, and I were talking beforehand about how teams usually don't stay an extra season. They move out in the middle of the night like Ursay and the Colts. Right. Um, And and that that tends to happen. The Raiders are going to be around next year. It's going to be interesting how Raider Nation, uh, if it becomes frayed uh, by this move.
0: The real key to all of this is mega events, and we segue into Final Four, which is this week. And it is interesting because Indiana University fired Tom Crean. Steve Alford was going to be the coach because he was an All American hero in Indiana, but yet, Nate Nathan, Dayton's yeah, Archie Miller took the job, and coaches around the country expected Adidas. To pay for $7.8 million buyout at UCLA to get the coach back to Bloomington, Uh, it did not. It's another example of retail wars influencing the Ultimates' decision as we head toward the Final Four in Phoenix. So the bottom line of all of this is, what do we think about retail influence with coaches, with players, with everybody else in college sports?
1: Well, look, the sneaker, you could, we could debate the ethics of sneaker deals uh, and institutions of higher education, but there is leverage here. I didn't realize that Adidas was going to pay the buyout for Alfred. That's astonishing. Does that happen often?
0: Yeah, it does. And the bottom line of all of this is now that is a factor in every deal, not only coaches now, but players and teams. When you look at the bonuses, by the way, of the teams in the Final Four, uh, guys are getting $250,000 uh, if they win the championship. But they've already made anywhere from six hundred dollars to $800,000 in a series of bonuses just by getting there, the four coaches in the Final Four. Uh, of
1: course, of course. when you say guys, you don't mean the actual players. Um But, but, but let me ask, let me ask a question that, and I don't know this, I'm, you know, I'm a layman in a lot of ways in this, do coaches come with sneaker company rabbis? I mean, do they come with the, okay, Alfred's an Adidas coach, Uh, somebody else is an Under Armour coach, somebody else is a Nike coach, do coaches travel with these contracts, or is it a school targeting situation? How how do the sneaker companies make their uh, decisions?
0: That's a good point. The above board is that they travel with the uh, contract and then they are hired by that company for personal services. The other thing that's not really told is when they go from, let's say, an Adidas school to a Nike school, they are made whole. The uh, the company uh, takes over the program and compensates the school and does it through the athletic department. It's all legal, but it's a very interesting dynamic. As far, The one thing that is very clear is that sneaker wars in retail is dominating college athletics. And uh, to that end, Really interesting interview that I know you've heard and like. Uh, Matt O'Toole is the worldwide global intergalactic president of uh, of Reebok, uh, Boston headquarters. But he has a very interesting perspective on all of sports, why they invest in what they do. And he thinks that there is a significant impact of how the retail companies are influencing college athletics. We understand that. Is it ruining it or is it helping it? Let's hear the perspective of Matt O'Toole. Rick Haro, Sports Analytics Conference at uh, Sloan, MIT. Uh, Matt O'Toole has been with Reebok for a number of years and is now elevated to the big guy, President. Is that the right title? President That's of right. Reebok. That's right. It doesn't get any better than that. It Thank doesn't, doesn't. Thank you for yeah. doing this. Thanks for having me. Really right. appreciate, appreciate that. So a 30-second elevator speech on how you emerged successfully in the company and are now running it.
2: Go. I'll, I'll start with one word, and it's persistence. You, I mean, you got you to be going after all the jump balls. and. Um, I think sometimes it might not feel like you're making progress, but people are watching, and uh, you know every. I, I like to tell the folks that I work for is that you know every action is a leadership opportunity. And uh, I, I had a great mentor uh, going through my career who really focused on that idea that you just stay tenacious, stay persistent, persistent, and uh, who was that? realize his name is Ed Abrain and he yeah. was the president of Wilson Sporting Goods, but okay, great right. guy. Yeah. So. So the bottom line is that it is a um, successful
0: uh, moving through an organization and understanding how the brand is evolving and you evolving with it. So good for you, but good for Reebok as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, But the long-term commitment to be part of this sticker war, retail war, global war, Get get up every day running a a, a very well-known global business and is it, how do I meet my targets, how do we beat the hell out of the competitors, how do we become more global? What's the core of the challenge today?
2: Well, it's a a pretty multi-dimensional landscape as you just mentioned because you're dealing in different cultures around the world, you're dealing with different business models around the world. We've got markets where we're a pure play retailer selling direct to the consumer and we've got markets where we're more wholesale driven but in the end it's really about understanding and really focusing on who your consumer is and what they're really looking for out there and uh, I'm not someone who wants to spend a lot of time and I coach my people not to spend a lot of time on what the competition is doing but just to make sure that we're really in touch with what our consumer is thinking and what really is their interests and how we can really surprise and delight them and i think that's that's kind of a simple formula but in fact it's actually what you need to do is there room well there's room clearly for a number of competitors in the market
0: but how do you uh, intensify your uniqueness and also be able to uh, brand it as it's either a millennial brand or a certain kind of brand. Mm-hmm. The branding of Reebok has become a very successful case study. Yeah. So, what's the core of that uniqueness and how do you pull it off?
2: Well, I think it's, it's the, it is the ultimately the, where the value of the company lives. Like the value of the company lives in our brand and its relationship with the consumer. And I think if we went back 20 years ago, you could have kind of a one-size-fits-all approach and, um, and really sell the idea of buying a piece of sport. But today, um, we're dealing with putting together unique consumers, unique communities that want something for their community. A great example for us is uh, we have a relationship with uh, probably the fastest growing fitness activity in the world called CrossFit. And, but CrossFit is a unique thing and the people who do CrossFit have very specific product requirements they have very specific needs in terms of their community and they're looking for a brand that uh, understands them and speaks to them so this i mean i guess maybe it boils down to much more authentic approach much more targeted approach than maybe we could do twenty years ago when you would just you know book a big television campaign with the networks and uh, pack up the the shoes to the ceiling and go you know? well
0: i guess that's yeah. part of the point too business case business audience Do you? At this point, try to be—and you don't. Try to be all things to all people. Yeah. Uh, do you find your niche? Do you wake up sometimes frustrated because here's the next big Nike spend and here's the next no. big team allocation? We're not doing that because we're more disciplined. No. How's that all work?
2: Well, that's that's a great question. And um, you know, one of the decisions that we made just five years ago was we want to have a deeper relationship with a narrower group of consumers than a kind of broad brush of the peanut butter across the bread with a lot of consumers. Because when you don't have that depth of that relationship, the value that you're creating for the consumer is really limited. And so we went back and said, our roots are in fitness and running. We're just going to focus on that particular area of the sports world, which happens to be about $80 billion of annual sales around the world. But it it is more narrow than our competition, but it's allowed us to really be experts and specialists. I mean, the whole fitness area, our people, our designers, our developers, our product marketers are living it every day, and and that's what's allowing us to have this kind of deeper relationship with the consumer than just making a lot of everything for everyone. And you're
0: more millennial oriented than a lot of other brands, and so therefore, how has the
2: proliferation
0: of social media changed the marketing of your company?
2: Well, I think, I mean, it is the channel. I mentioned earlier that if you were marketing to guys like you and I a few years ago, you'd buy a network television. (laughs) That's right. Um, But, you know, today, this thing, this machine that uh, everybody's holding in their hand is really the vehicle. And how they're receiving and authenticating their information in terms of their social networks, their friends, is a totally different experience. I think this, this is really at the core of a consumer who is probably a lot more savvy than we were when we were making our purchase decisions about uh, what we wanted to have as a young person so you have to be authentic it has to be real but it's also got to be
0: frustrating in a way that madison avenue in many ways no matter how you sugarcoat it has not caught up to the notion of how to monetize the digital space and the social media space and so. The way people evaluate those relationships they're not in the
2: stone age but they're pretty far back yeah. there is that catching up where's that I going? think it is I think um, I mean in some ways um, typical value chain in terms of marketing and media has been changed and a lot of people have been left out yeah. and the new people who control the channel might be uh, person on Instagram who's got 20 million followers so he or she is definitely in a different position uh, to control that channel that that the advertising folks are kind of left out of now.
0: But your marketing people are much more sophisticated much more intelligent and your agencies are much more responsive a-
2: absolutely some of them are here right now yeah. well some are here <laughs> right now which is by the way why I'm saying and also <laughs> as far as a
0: brand concern you're all wearing Reeboks is that a coincidence
2: it is not a coincidence <laughs> uh, but I mean one thing I mean it's interesting that you say yeah. But I mean, one of the things that we're really benefiting from and, and so are our competitors is that uh, The authenticity of sport, it's this one emotional connection that we have has become a lifestyle and so whether you're at a conference like this or going to Starbucks, people are wearing kind of their connection to sport. Are you worried about the sports business broadly defined is outpricing the
0: normal middle of the road consumer? A lot of people can't go to games anymore, the rights fees are higher, the tiered delivery of certain cable systems is higher as well. Uh, or will it all shake itself out?
2: I think this idea of accessibility is a really important yeah. topic and um, we've got to be careful as an industry as a you know deliver of an entertainment product in those cases you just mentioned that we're still cultivating a super broad fan base but um, I think the good news is there's a lot of different ways that consumers getting access to kind of smaller digestible pieces of you know last night's game or whatever else it might be. Do we all now, are we all dumbed down where the attention span is seven minutes now,
0: or is there, and and how do you adjust the long-term sale? Your sale is, uh, I don't know if it's more of a sophisticated sale, but it's a more, interesting integrated product, it's more subtle, it appeals to the consumer, yeah. but it's hard to get that word across.
2: Well anywhere. I think, I mean this is a great point, like there's no, no one's gonna listen to, you know, whether it's, you know, 60 seconds or 30 seconds yeah. of anything anymore, um, and so what you're really doing for the consumer is trying to paint a mosaic of all these touch points they get from your brand, whether it's from influencers, whether it's your content directly or whether it's other consumers, so that ultimately, the consumer kind of comes to an informed decision and uh... because you're right you're not going to get anybody's attention for very long in this environment
0: is there an overall mantra or business philosophy on how you pick your your partners your distribution partners your your television partners your endorsers you know give us an example of how you make those decisions
2: well i think it, it really dovetails well to what we were just talking about that that what you're looking for is Relationships that are deep enough to keep people's attention. How much time you're willing to spend or invest with one of our partners. I mean, a marquee partners from the beginning was the uh, Reebok Spartan race, which is a race that you do, an uh, obstacle course race. And what we found when we started working with the Spartan folks is that the consumer's relationship with that race is as important to him as some of the other big milestones in his life so he's going to spend time learning digesting more with the products they need so we're looking for partnerships that are much more emotionally engaging for our consumers.
0: Now what does that mean to you now? How does Reebok activate off of that
2: knowledge? Well basically you're able then by understanding that activity and the products that you need for it to serve up a real personalized and customized product for that community and I think what we're doing is by really targeting all these unique communities and then putting them together you're creating scale that way as opposed to this kind of umbrella approach that we had in the past what's the sneaker war slash retail business look like five years from now i think again it's it's still going to be driven heavily by consumers interest we've got a you know we talked earlier about the millennial this is a consumer that is Far less interested in just collecting things. Maybe when I was growing up, you know, I wanted to have a nice car and a big yeah. house and a, maybe another house by the lake. This isn't what these consumers are thinking about. Their version of wealthy is W-E-L-L-T-H-Y, and basically, did you hear? I got two daughters. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> but but what what that means is you, we're going to have to connect our products to experiences. Yeah. We can't just kind of connect them to hey, this is the sexy new thing. Yeah future of reebok i know you can't really s-
0: summarize yeah. but what what's it, what's the company look like brand wise five years
2: ago? well i think the biggest thing is like if- we are true to our purpose will become more of a badge to our consumers, a badge that represents a way of living, a badge that's about living a healthy and fit life as opposed to any individual products and so to do that we've got to create a much more, a richer experience, richer content for our consumer and ultimately live it authentically ourselves, which we do. You're an international
0: company but you're also Boston's company. Yes. And this is there's a lot of distribution to, to Boston as well here. So obviously other than being a Patriots and Red Sox fan and all that other stuff that I hear as a dolphin guy that makes me sick, but I love it. What do you do charitably, philanthropically, giving back to the Boston community? I know you're moving your, you're opening a new headquarters here too, so right. talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so maybe on that last point, one of the things we're really excited about is the fact that we're moving our headquarters, um, our entire staff into the city, and yeah. really becoming an active part of the community. We're partnering with the mayor of Boston on an initiative to make Boston the fittest city in America, wow. and um, we've already laid the groundwork with um, a program that we call Box, which is a before-school exercise program for right. kids. Now, it caused you to climb Kilimanjaro. It did. Was... It did exactly right. But what Box does is when we got physical fitness out of schools we actually hurt their ability to learn, kids ability to learn so we're getting exercise back into schools we're working on ways to making as we talked about accessibility earlier making fitness accessible to everybody in the city but there's just no doubt that the benefits of actually moving go far beyond you know whether you have a six pack abs, you're cognitively stronger, you're socially stronger and uh, there's no city in the world that should be surpassing Boston in that area.
0: Do you have a feeling, and I know it's a political question, uh, LA may get the Olympics, Paris may, it's one of those fights. When Marty Walsh, when the decision was made to kind of pass, how yeah. did you feel about that?
2: Oh, I think like a lot of Bostonians uh, it, it, it was a little bit heartbreaking because yeah. we, got, we have so much to offer in the yeah. city with the facilities we have, the academic community, the research community, just for us to be on display with the rest of the world would be amazing.
0: Any advice to the thousands of students who want jobs from you and have, you know, jumped on every move of yours? Give some advice on getting into the
2: business. Well, I think they're, they're actually they're doing the right thing by being here in the first place. I think that, um, you know, I, you asked me earlier what worked in my career. So I'm a big uh, kind of persistence yeah. and tenacity guy. But um, in, in the end, I, I think too often when I talk to young people who are looking for jobs. It's, they're not clear enough about what they really want to do. I mean, uh, and so I always coach them to let's make sure we go one step further and really understand what it is you're looking for. Um, because once you have that clarity, it's going to be a lot easier for companies to put you in a spot. And I think right now you've got, you know, it's, it's this great industry sport, but I think you've got to take a little bit more time and get a little more focused. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. Thanks for
0: listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Horrow. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Havte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Wadick, And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.